Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle, the producer of ReSound. Hey, if you count yourself among the true fans of public radio, or if you're just looking for something fun to do on a Sunday night, you should consider coming to our awards ceremony on the evening of October 7th. We'll be celebrating the best audio of the year with all kinds of public radio rock stars. There's going to be champagne and live music and all kinds of fun, fun stuff. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, for all the details and to buy tickets. All right, hope to see you there, and here's ReSound. I'm sorry, man. No, no, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry, man. No, I was whack. I'm sorry. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is ReSound. Reconciliation, it means the changed relationship for the better between persons or groups who formerly were at enmity with each other. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Today, we're going to be talking about how to forgive somebody quickly and easily. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Do you have any relationships in your life that you just struggle with, that there's conflict in them that you just can't resolve? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If so, this book, Breaking Free, How Forgiveness and A Course in Miracles Can Set You Free, may have the answers for you. There's an entire self-help industry out there aimed at helping us forgive each other. But once a person becomes your enemy, they usually stay your enemy. Escaping the trajectory of anger and finding it in your heart to forgive isn't an easy thing to do. That's why when it happens, when enemies evolve into friends, their stories are particularly compelling. Today on ReSound, people who start out as bitter enemies and end up in places you could never predict. Stay with us. When Rabbi Michael Weiser moved to Lincoln, Nebraska from New York, self-avowed anti-Semite Larry Trapp was determined to make an enemy out of him. And he tried really, really hard. But despite his best efforts, he just couldn't do it. 
Rabbi Weiser tells the story. I was uh, married to uh, Julie, and we went out there uh, together. The culture is really different than the East Coast. Uh, it's a little slower, and people are more reticent in that part of the country. But overall, it's a really pretty nice place to live, and I, I really didn't have any cultural adjustment to make. Julie and I had purchased a house, and we were moving into uh, the house and unpacking one Sunday morning, and we had a... Uh, a call from an unknown person. I picked up the phone and said hello. And he said, um, You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. And uh, I did call the police and, and told them that I had received this threatening call. And uh, a few minutes later, a patrol car showed up and a police officer took a report. And he said that he thought he knew who might be behind it and uh, mentioned the name Larry Trapp. Larry Trapp had been uh, notorious in the community as a white supremacist, uh, hateful person. The police gave us instructions in a way, which was pretty troubling. They said, you know, tell your kids not to go back and forth to school in the same pattern. And a couple of days later, we received a package in the mail filled with about 50 or 60 items of racist material, brochures, white power organizations, and there was one picture I remember in particular of Dr. Martin Luther King with a gun sight imposed over his forehead, and the caption was, Our dream came true. I think the most chilling of all, there was a business card in that package that was a Ku Klux Klan business card that had on the back of it, The Ku Klux Klan is watching you, scum. And that was pretty scary. So I called the police again, and they came and took all this material and confirmed that they thought it was Larry Trapp. After a while, I started thinking that it might be a good thing to try to contact him. And so uh, I got his phone number from a friend of mine who worked for the phone company. My plan was to see if he would talk to me. Maybe some good could come of it, or maybe I could just get it off my chest and say, leave my family alone. I dialed his number. When I called, I got an answering machine, and the, uh, the answering machine had a, a anti-ethnic diatribe against Asian people. And it just went on and on and on about how the Asians are just ruining America and they don't deserve any better than the blacks and uh, the Jews and all of that. And uh, it was disgusting. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to call and leave messages for him. And I became, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, obsessed with the idea of contacting him. And so I'd call, and when it said, um, you've reached the Ku Klux Klan, white power, if you're interested in membership, leave your number. And, and I would leave a little message, which I started calling love notes. One message was, Larry, there's a lot of love out there and you're not getting any of it. What's wrong with you? And I'd hang up. Another was, uh, why do you love the Nazis so much? They would have killed you first because you're disabled. Larry Trapp was a double amputee as a result of advanced diabetes at a young age who lived his life in a wheelchair. After several months of calling, I, I realized that I was doing a pretty strange thing. I called every Thursday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. I had appointments with children for bar mitzvah lessons at 3.30, and so I called just before that. After a while, I think Larry Trapp figured out who was calling him. And finally, one day, Larry answered the phone. 
And he started yelling and screaming at me. Why are you calling me? You're hassling me. I can't say what he said for a family radio program. But I said, I don't want to hassle you, Larry. I just want to talk to you. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I heard you're disabled. I thought you might need a ride to the grocery. And there was a dead silence for a long time. He finally came back on and said, uh, I've got that covered. But don't call me anymore. This is my business phone. And uh, Larry Trapp still kept getting calls from me at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon for another couple of months. And finally, on a Saturday evening, the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and, and he said, Is this the rabbi? Is this the rabbi? And I said, uh, Yes, it is. Is this Larry Trapp? And he said, Yes, it is. I said, what can I do for you? He said, I want to get out of what I'm doing and I don't know how. And I said, would you like to talk about it? He said, yes. I said, well, I'll come over. I know where you live. So I hung up. My son I said, Dad, you can't go and see this guy. I said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to pick up some chicken or something and go break bread with the guy. He said, you can't do that. When a Nazi wants to have you over for dinner, he means it literally. <laughs> but I did call a friend of mine before going, and he said, what are you, crazy? It could be an ambush. I said, look, if you don't hear from me by midnight, send the police. Do you know what I mean? And Julie and I got in the car, and we drove to his house and uh, knocked on the door. And he opened the door. He's sitting in a wheelchair with a Mac-10 automatic weapon in his lap and a shotgun hanging off the corner of the wheelchair and a pistol in his lap as well. And I said, oh my God, we're dead. But instead, he reached out his hand and I shook his hand and he burst into tears. And he began taking these rings off his fingers and they were two swastika Nazi rings. And he handed them to me and said, take these away, they've caused me nothing but trouble all my life. And we talked and talked about what he had been doing and why he wanted to get out of it and the uh, sort of childhood he had had. Hiding under the bed so his father wouldn't beat him, which I'm convinced brought him to where he was in this hateful business. A constant tale of violence and racism and hatred and bigotry. He was doing this to try to make himself okay with his father who was that kind of person, but he did it with a vengeance. I mean, he had gotten himself elevated to a position of authority within the Ku Klux Klan. He was called the Grand Dragon of Nebraska. Strange. So Larry Trapp uh, determined that he was going to live a different way that night. And uh, he asked me to take away all this literature and paraphernalia that he had around the house. Larry Trapp, he was not very old, but he had been sick a good part of his life. And he wasn't feeling very good one day, and he uh, was beginning to have kidney failure. Uh, Julie said, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't abandon this guy, you know? And he's all alone in that apartment. What do you think about inviting him to come live with us? And so we moved him into uh, what had been our daughter's bedroom, and he was still functioning, you know, he was still living but living like with a family. Uh, Julie actually took care of him. Uh, she gave up her job in order to take care of Larry Trapp, who needed some care and attention. It was uh, an unusual time, to say the least. During that time, Larry Trapp started bugging me about wanting to become Jewish. 
And I said, well, Larry, come on, you grew up a Catholic, why don't you just go to church? And he said, no, I had a miracle in my life and it came from Judaism. I said, no, Larry, it came from you. I had friends in the Christian ministry and I tried to palm him off on them, you know, and uh, Larry kept insisting he wanted to study Judaism. Well, we did have a ceremony uh, of conversion at the synagogue, which Larry had been attending, by the way, and he adopted Judaism lived the rest of his life in my house until one morning at about three o'clock he died. He lived in that house for nine months. It's almost like he went through that whole cycle of uh, birth again and he died a better man than he lived. I was happy for him. His funeral took place at the uh, temple filled with mourners because Larry had done a lot of work in that nine months to try to make amends with people. And he was on the phone constantly calling people and apologizing and telling them he's sorry he hurt them. He spoke several times at the high schools against racism and he became a better kind of celebrity than he had been before. I felt like a member of the family had died. I think everybody in my family felt that way. You know, like everybody has a weird old uncle. He, he had become that guy in my family, you know, and well-loved. The Rabbi and the KKK was produced by Anna Sussman and originally aired on Snap Judgment. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Friends and foes, lovers and haters, we want to hear from all of you. Write to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. I'd seen the picture of the Iraqi soldier's family and I had made my decision. I didn't want to break my promise. I told myself, I won't let this soldier die. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Zoom out on any war and you'll see a tragic picture. The first Persian Gulf War was no exception. Hundreds of thousands of lives were lost and countless atrocities were committed. But zoom in, and in the midst of all the darkness, you're sure to find pockets of breathtaking bravery and compassion. Such was the case with the two soldiers in our next story. The story, Two Enemies, One Heart, comes to us from the show The State We're In from Radio Netherlands. The first voice you'll hear is that of host Jonathan Gruber, who interviewed the two soldiers and narrates the story. Two men, both soldiers, one Iranian and one Iraqi, were preparing to go to war against each other. The Iranian is Zahed Haflang. He'd run away from home to join the army when he was just 14 years old. He knew nothing about the enemy. The only time Iraq was ever mentioned was in geography class. I never dreamt that one day I'd be fighting against them. The Iraqi is Naja Aboud. He didn't even want to go to war. We never talked about Iran. The government said negative things about Iranians. 
But I'd never been to Iran before, so I just assumed they weren't like us. The Iran-Iraq war lasted eight years and claimed as many as 1.3 million lives. And one city in particular saw a number of bloody battles. Khodamshar, as it's called in Persian, or Al-Muhammada in Arabic. The city had been captured by Iraqi forces in 1980 who committed atrocities there, raping women, killing children. Two years later, Iran was planning an all-out attack to retake it. And by this time, Zahed had become a paramedic in the Iranian army. The plan had been made a few months earlier. They dammed up a river near the battle zone. Then, one day, they blew the dam up. The water flooded the whole zone and most people were drowned or buried alive. The first part worked perfectly. Iraqi forces were shooting like maniacs, but our blitz attack allowed us to win back Khoramshah and our dignity. Some of them tried to surrender. They came out with their hands up. But most of the soldiers just shot them anyway. We weren't supposed to kill them. We were supposed to just push them back or capture them. But some soldiers didn't listen. So, after that successful attack, what were your orders on that day? My orders were to go to each bunker, one at a time, and help our injured soldiers by bandaging their wounds. I also had to drag the dead bodies out of the bunker for pickup. It was just before sunrise, so I took my flashlight with me. In this one bunker, I came across a frightening and tragic scene. There were all these body parts covered with blood amongst dead bodies. I was about to leave when I heard a very weak moaning sound. How did that sound? It sounded like someone moaning. So I followed the sound to see where it was coming from. I saw a corpse. I was afraid to move it because sometimes Iraqi soldiers would put grenades under their bodies and they'd explode if you moved them. It was risky, but I decided to lift this one dead body to find the noise. Underneath it was an Iraqi soldier. He was injured and covered in blood. The man I had found was Naja. Naja had been conscripted into the Iraqi army and had to leave his wife and son and go fight in Khodamshar. We had no choice. We were like chess pieces. I was a pawn in their game. When did the fighting start to get intense? That's a difficult question. There were so many battles. We were in battles and bombings every week. But Al-Muhammad was the last and worst battle for me. The night of the attack, it was really dark. The intelligence we'd got from our superiors was wrong. They said a small group will attack us at night, so we were prepared for a small group. 
But we were attacked from behind, where our own army was supposed to be. And in the fighting, the armies got all mixed up. It was really hard to tell Iranian soldiers from Iraqi soldiers. You could only see fire and hear screams of pain. And I was stumbling around through dead bodies. When did you go into the bunker, Nadja? When my tank was hit, the Iraqi and Iranian soldiers were shelling from both sides of us, and we were stuck in a tank in the crossfire. When we were hit, we crawled out and looked for shelter, any place to hide. We got injured when a mortar shell landed near us. I was wounded all over my head and body. I lost strength, but I kept on rolling over because I knew there was a shelter nearby. I fell down in the bunker and landed on a pile of corpses. They were all around me. I was losing blood, so I searched the bodies for a piece of cloth so I could apply pressure onto my wounds. I couldn't find anything and I was beginning to feel dizzy. And at this point, all I could do was wait for death. There was nothing else. I clearly heard the sounds of bombing and fighting outside. I didn't know if the people around me were alive or dead or just afraid. We were all just silent. And I thought, this is the end. And the enemy's coming. And then you saw a light. I thought I saw an angel, not a light. I felt a touch on my chest, tugging at me. Then reaching into my shirt pocket. I thought maybe an Iranian or Iraqi soldier was stealing from me, thinking I was dead. He took out my wallet and my Quran. In the Quran was a picture of my wife and son. He looked at it, then put them back without taking anything else. I knew then that he was an angel and not a devil. At this point, Zahid was still following orders and began checking Naja for weapons. Then something happened that made him follow his conscience instead. I was searching through his clothes to see which part of his body was injured. His head and arms were bleeding badly. He could barely move, but he was trying to bring his hand to his breast pocket. He had a gold Rolex watch, uh, some money and a Quran. In the Quran was a photo of his wife and son. And at that moment, when he was in pain and crying, I put myself in his place. I thought, I'm going to save him for the sake of his wife and his child. I see. And what happened? I put everything back in his pocket. I was trying to gesture to him to be quiet because we couldn't understand each other. I was thinking, what am I going to do with him? I could take him to the Iraq border, but I knew that was impossible. While I was with him, another Iranian soldier found us. He began to take aim to shoot the injured Iraqi. So I quickly grabbed a grenade and pulled the pin out, and I said to the soldier, I swear to God, if you shoot him, I'm going to blow us all up. 
What? You were going to blow yourself up? Did you mean it? هم خودم و هم yes. Why did you feel so strongly about this? Because I'd seen the picture of the Iraqi soldier's family and I had made my decision. I didn't want to break my promise. What did you promise yourself? I told myself, I won't let this soldier die. What would have happened if you'd been caught trying to save this man's life? I probably would have been executed. Well, again, I have then just got to ask you, Zahed, why are you doing this? Why did you do this? For the sake of humanity. If I didn't save him, where would that leave the ideal of humanity? Was it only in the books that I'd read as a child? The other Iranian soldier told me that he was going to tell our commander what I'd done. And as he left, I was praying, oh God, if he tells the commander, they'll kill me. Just then I heard an explosion that shook the bunker. I ran out and found the soldier who'd been on his way to our commander. A mortar had hit him. He tried to tell me something, but I couldn't understand him because his whole neck was covered in blood. Shortly after that, he died. I would be lying if I didn't say that part of me was happy that he hadn't made it to the commander and that my secret was safe. But I was upset that an Iranian soldier had died. I went back inside the bunker and found the injured Iraqi. I dragged him to the end of the bunker and made a wall of dead bodies around him to hide him. For Zahed, rescuing the horribly injured Naja was a matter of conviction, but it was extremely risky. They were gathering Iraqi prisoners together when I went to see my sergeant. I asked him, what are our orders when it comes to Iraqi prisoners? He began yelling at me and said, these people are enemies of Iran. Then he gave orders to shoot. All the Iraqi prisoners were then slaughtered. He put my arm around his shoulder. My wounds were hurting me when I started to move, so he pulled me out of the bunker and away from all the dead bodies. And then suddenly, another Iranian soldier came out of nowhere and hits me in the face with the butt of his rifle and breaks all my teeth. The two soldiers started to shout at each other. I didn't understand anything, but I was pretty sure he was defending me. The Iranian soldier defending Naja was Zahed Haflang. Zahed could have been executed for helping the enemy. Iranian forces wanted revenge for atrocities committed by Iraqi troops. And they were getting it. They were gathering Iraqi prisoners together when I went to see my sergeant. I asked him, what are our orders when it comes to Iraqi prisoners? And he began yelling at me and said, these people are enemies of Iran. Then he gave orders to shoot. All the Iraqi prisoners were then slaughtered. Seeing that made me crazy. 
I kept thinking, oh god, I shouldn't have asked the sergeant anything because now he's only going to want even more revenge. But the next day, I went back to see the sergeant and asked him about the prisoners. Well, again, he was very angry and told me we had to kill all Iraqi soldiers. I said, we can't possibly kill every one of them, so what are we supposed to do? So he calls the head of command. They gave the order that if everything's stable in our zone, then we should collect all the injured and imprisoned Iraqi soldiers. There's no need to kill them anymore. At least you knew you could bring him back safely. What happened then? So I went to get him, but the corpses were really foul-smelling. And the path to the Iraqi soldier had become very narrow with all the bodies. I was struggling to get him out, so I picked up a shovel and began to hack my way through the corpses to get at him. Finally, I reached him. And with the help of a buddy, we got him on the stretcher and took him to the hospital. He took me to a hospital, but it was full and the doctor refused to help me. I was put in a big hall, and all I could hear was people shouting. But then I recognized the voice of the soldier who helped me. He was talking to the doctor and pointing at me. He stood there, begging the doctor to help me. I couldn't understand what they were talking about, but whatever the soldier said, it worked. When I walked in, I found the Iraqi soldier on the floor, shaking. He'd lost so much blood, he'd gone into shock. When the doctor saw this, he changed his mind. I was told to go and wash my hands and help out with the operation. And it worked. It was successful. When's the last time you saw him? Three days later. I was bringing some other injured men to the hospital when the doctor called me over. He asked me to stand by the bedside of the injured Iraqi soldier I'd brought in. The doctor then spoke with a very heavy accent in bad Arabic to him and said, this man here saved your life. The man's face was covered in bandages. He gestured with his index finger to come closer. He then tried to kiss my hand. In Arabic culture, when someone kisses your hand, it's the highest gesture of appreciation and respect. I could see that he had this smile of satisfaction on his lips, that I wouldn't change for all the money in the world. His smile was heartwarming and beautiful. I took my hand away and I kissed his forehead. And then we both cried. I stayed with him for a while, checking to see if he needed water or anything else. During my few hours with him, a bus came. They took him away with the other Iraqi prisoners. I never saw him after that. That final scene from May 1982 is seared into Naja's memory as well. Saying goodbye to Zahed, the angel who'd saved his life, 
by getting him to a hospital. He was talking with the doctor, but he was looking at me the whole time. He made a goodbye gesture with a smile. My arms were wounded, so I couldn't reach out to him. He touched my hair and kissed me. I said, may God punish your enemy. I remember those words came automatically, straight from my heart. But even as I was saying them, I realized that I was his enemy. Just imagine the scene. I'm lying there, bleeding in a virtual graveyard, and this Iranian soldier comes and rescues me. He brings me to a hospital, and there's a doctor who treats me and saves me. And thanks to this soldier, this person who came from heaven to help me and brought me back from the grave to safety. And I may never see him again. Naja's life had been saved, but that didn't mean he was free to go back to his wife and son in Iraq. He was now a prisoner of war. Before my wounds were healed, we were all rounded up and taken to a camp, a military prison, where I was kept for 17 years. I was a prisoner, a servant, a kind of slave. They hit me, they beat me, threatened me, insulted me. We suffered from hunger, sickness, and people died there. You went through this for 17 years. I, I I hate to ask you, I mean, I hate to ask you this, Nadja, but did the thought ever come into your head, maybe I would have been better off dying in that bunker? Many prisoners committed suicide. But I love life, and I always kept hoping that maybe someday I'd be free. How did you, how did you keep going? Where did your hope come from? Good question. Good question. I used to talk with prisoners to give them hope. I had hope and I wanted them to be like me. What happened the day you were released? I felt it was like doomsday. I thought it was the end of the world for me. At night, two or three men came and they started to beat us and insult us. And they covered our eyes with blindfolds and put us on buses. For two days, we traveled on those buses with no idea where we were going. Every seven hours, they stopped the buses and gave us some bread and cheese. And then the buses would start moving again. Finally, they took us off the buses and took off our blindfolds. And then an Iranian colonel with a smile on his face comes over and says, My brothers, I want to tell you something. Our countries are neighbors and we share the same history and religion. We regret what happened. The war is over. It's in the past. I was surprised because I didn't even know the war was over. We were never told. What was it like for you to finally get home after 17 years? I don't even know where to begin. It's painful. But I'll tell you this. A friend of my father's was a colonel in the Iraqi army. My father had asked him to find me. He did find me, and he took me to my family. But they didn't recognize me. My sister asked the colonel, where's my brother? 
He pointed at me, but she didn't believe him. She said, no, this isn't my brother. I had completely changed. Only my voice was recognizable. Najim, what about your wife and child? I came back to Iraq and it was turned upside down. Everything was completely destroyed during the war. I looked everywhere to find her, but nobody knew anything about her. I still haven't found her. But you've completely lost them. But I still have hope. Was there nothing left for you back in Iraq? Only memories. Naja eventually left Iraq and settled with a relative in Vancouver, Canada. For Zahed, the man who'd saved Naja's life, destiny was also unkind. He was engaged to be married, but it was wartime when tragic things happen. The day we were supposed to be married, the Iraqi Air Force bombed our city. In the bombardment, my fiancé was killed. My God, on your wedding day? Yes. What impact did that have on you? I began fighting. I didn't feel sorry for Iraqi soldiers or for anyone. And then I was captured. One hour before the war officially ended. One hour? One hour. And where did this happen? Sumar. Samar, in the city of Samar. And did, did they imprison you? They treated me very badly. I'd been shot, I was injured and bleeding, I was in pain, but even with all this, they kicked me and beat me on the ground and hit me with the butts of their guns. How long were you in prison? Two years, four months, 17 days, eight hours, and 23 minutes. Every second of it felt like a year. And I counted down every second of it until I was freed. How hard was it for you to settle back into life in Iran, Zahid? Before I got back, they'd announced that I'd been killed. So they actually had a grave for me. I went to visit my own grave. What? You went to your own grave? Yes. What was it like standing down, looking down on your own gravestone with your name on it, knowing that's supposed to be you? At first, my brain was just frozen. Then all the ugly and bitter memories flooded back and kept washing over me. I sat down and started crying on my own grave. I cried for five minutes and then told myself, you idiot, why are you crying? Get up, you haven't died. I was so upset and angry that I kicked the headstone with my picture on it and I broke it. A security guard saw what was happening and came to arrest me. But when he saw my picture, he looked at me and went a bit nuts. He said, he's not dead, but he had a grave. And then he ran away. Poor guy was so confused. No matter how much I yelled that I just wanted to talk, he still ran away. The Iran-Iraq war was over in 1988, but the damage it had done to Zahed was permanent. He fell deeper and deeper into despair. He had trouble keeping a job and even became a thug for hire. 
Eventually, though, he became a merchant marine. He loved the restlessness of the sea. But his own restless spirit was reaching a breaking point. On the ship, there was a, a kind of religious officer on board, a guardian of political ideology. He started picking on me, bothering me. Around that time, the ship was coming into Canada. There was a picture on the wall of the ship of Ayatollah Khomeini. So I broke it and started to beat him up. How badly did you beat him? I broke his nose. I punched him and bruised his cheeks, which got all swollen up. After you beat up this religious officer on the ship, what would have been the consequences of that back in Iran? If I'd have returned to Iran, they would have destroyed me, for sure. They would have put me back in prison. So what did you decide to do? Once the ship docked in the harbour in North Vancouver, Canada, I took my bags. One of the ship staff and an Iranian guy working on the pier helped me. They found a location for me until the ship sailed away from the harbour. Did you see the ship leave? Yes, I saw the ship leaving. I was waving and saying, goodbye Iran, goodbye land. Goodbye all my beloved ones. Goodbye Warfront. I lost everything for a second time. Starting from zero again. So sorry, Zahid. So there you are. You're in this completely strange country. No passport. You don't speak the language. You don't really have that much money. Where'd you go? But Raftam immigration. I went to immigration and I applied for refugee status so that I could stay. I understand that you hit a real low point while you were there. I had two roommates who were going to the park. And they asked me to go, but I just wasn't in the mood. I was crying and told them to leave me alone. When they left, I looked out of the window to check that they'd gone. When I saw them, I knew they were on their way to the park. It was then that I tried to kill myself. What I didn't know was that one of them had forgotten to take his glasses. So he came back into the room to get them and he found me trying to hang myself. He started grabbing at my legs and shouting for help. Other people started coming into the room and they got me down and took me to the hospital. Zahid, I, I don't want to be insensitive here, but I do have to ask this. Why did you try to kill yourself then? I mean, you'd survived the war. You were finally a free man. You're in a new country with potentially a whole new life ahead of you. Why end it all? Freedom is a very delicate and subtle thing. But I've never felt freedom in my entire life. I still don't think I have freedom. Were you looking to be free by killing yourself? Somehow, yes. 
I couldn't take it anymore. All the pressure, the injustice and evil. Zahed's friends persuaded him to get counseling. There happened to be a treatment center for torture victims in Vancouver. So Zahed started going. It was now the year 2000. Here's the scene. Zahed shows up for his regular appointment. He enters the waiting room. There's another man sitting there. Zahid notices something familiar about him. I asked him, are you Iranian? Because I'm Iranian. And then he started speaking Persian with a heavy Arabic accent. I asked him, Mr. Where did you learn to speak Persian? Because you're Arab. He said I was a prisoner of war in Iran. Iran, I thought that he was an Iranian Arab. I thought that I should talk to him, kill time until my appointment to see the counselor. The man looked up at Zahed. I saw a Middle Eastern man with what I thought was an Iraqi face. He greeted me by saying salam, and he sat down across from me. I had a half an hour or so, so I decided to chat with him, just to kill time. At the time, I wasn't really in the mood to talk. But when I heard his Persian accent, I wanted to talk with him because I loved the language and I wanted to practice with him. He did seem vaguely familiar to me. There is something about that smile. You don't forget a smile like that. When did you first start to realize you'd both been at the same battle? We started talking about the war and the areas we'd been in when the battles took place. We both mentioned al muhammad and discovered that we'd both been there at the same time. After I asked him some questions, he asked me, where were you captured? I said, Samar, and I asked him, where did they capture you? He said, al Mahamra, And I said, you mean Khoramshah, right? He smiled and said, yes. I said, I was there in that battle. Which bunker were you in exactly? He said, I was in one of the concrete bunkers. I said, which one? Tell me, because I know all of them. My job was to take all the Iranian and Iraqi corpses from the bunkers and bury them. The man said, I have a very special memory from there. I saved the life of an Iraqi soldier. I really hope he's still alive. And I said, I was saved by an Iranian soldier. Then the Iranian man became really interested. He asked me what happened, every detail, right down to the kind of tank I was in. And while I was doing this, he was reacting to all these details really intensely. And as we talked, he kept asking me questions. He wanted to be sure that I was the same soldier. And we started to finish each other's sentences. He said there was a very young boy in there like an angel coming from the sky. He didn't have a beard or a moustache. He came to me and I showed him a picture of my wife and child. I tested him by asking, why did you take the money from my wallet 
And he said, no, I didn't. I asked him, did you have a Rolex watch on your left wrist? Is that right? He said, you must have heard this story from someone. He said, my brother. I said, no, that young boy is me. It was me. We started talking loudly. We were still excited talking to each other in Persian. The people working there didn't understand what was happening, and they thought we were fighting. I just could not believe that this is the same Iraqi soldier whose life I saved 20 years ago. I was so excited. In spite of my throat, I've been screaming so loudly and crying. I found a certain reassurance. I saw how great and glorious the world could be. And how small. I hugged him and I kissed him. And then I found the confidence I'd lost. I was so happy that I didn't hang myself. So happy that I didn't die. Finding Najah was a rebirth for me. I was sure that I didn't die, that I was kept alive for a reason. Zahed, it sounds like you're saying that bumping into Naja saved your life. Yes, this time he saved my life. Naja is my angel too. He is my blood brother, he is my father, he is my essence, he is my family. And Naja, you thought the light from Zahid's flashlight was an angel. Is Zahid still your angel? Yes, he is my angel. Now and forever. Every time we meet, it's like we're meeting for the first time again. He is very precious to me. Zahed, uh, Naja, the two of you have, the both of you have lived through horror. You've lived through the depravity of war. Each of you has nearly died. You, you guys more or less lost everything. You lost everything. And yet you ended up saving each other's lives. This is one of the most astonishing stories I have ever come across in my life. So my question to you is, what mark has this incredible set of events left on the two of you? He's more than a brother to me. As much as I love my son, as much as I love my own brother, I love him more. Even more than my son, my brother, or my father, I love him. In this early year, for me, this has cleaned away all my tragedies, and my heart is clear. We are now one heart and two bodies.
One of the interpreters we used for this story was there that day when Nadja and Zahid had their incredible reunion. Her name is Edie Sadri. She was standing there right at the moment when the two men recognized each other. That day I was there. I am a witness. I'm a live witness. I thought, okay, that's, you know, what is going on? Because I remember these two big guy crying, you know, Middle Eastern guy, but they won't cry in front of others. <laughs> but they were crying and yelling and screaming. Everybody, every single person in that office, they were crying. And they're hugging each other and kissing each other and congratulating. I cannot describe it. It was really something um, you had to be there to experience it. Two Enemies, One Heart was produced by Minion Aylin for The State We're In on Radio Netherlands Worldwide. To see pictures of the enemies turned soulmates, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that someone else will die. Release the resentments, release the tension and the pain and the sorrow and all the things that stick inside us when we can't forgive somebody. And now one last story from the oral history project StoryCorps of an unlikely friendship and a remarkable act of forgiveness. It's so short and so powerful, it really needs no introduction other than to say, put down what you're doing and listen to this. You and I met at Stillwater Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset of what I remember from court, where I wanted to go over and hurt you, but you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And he became human to me, you know, 
when I met you, it was like, okay, this guy is real. And then when it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears. And the initial thing to do was just try to hold you up as best I can. Just hug you like I would my own mother, you know. After you left the room, I began to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and the animosity, all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over, that I had totally forgiven you. As far as receiving forgiveness from you, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. It's something that I'm learning from you. I won't say that I have learned yet because it's still a process that I'm going through. I treat you as I would treat my son. And our relationship is beyond belief. We live next door to one another. Yeah, so you can see what I'm doing. You know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And our conversations, they come from, boy, how come you ain't called over here to check on me in a couple of days? (laughs) You ain't even asked me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh Uh-huh. I find those things funny because it's a relationship with a mother for real. Well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. You know, you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. Just to hear you say those things and to be in my life in the manner in which you are is my motivation. It motivates me to make sure that I stay on the right path, you still believe in me. And the fact that you can do it despite how much pain I cause you, it's amazing. I know it's not an easy thing, you know, to be able to share our story together, even with us sitting here looking at each other right now. I know it's not an easy thing. So I admire that you can do this. I love you, lady. I love you too, son. Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel recorded their story with the National Oral History Project, StoryCorps. It was produced by Jasmine Belcher. The Hebrew root word is kafar, and it quite simply means atonement. Now Webster's defines it as to restore to friendship or harmony, reconciliation. One last thing before we go. We have just announced the winners of the 2012 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. And what's even better is that you can listen to them right now or any other time you'd like on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Now, even though the stories are all there for you to enjoy, and we promise you, you will, we have omitted one essential detail, who won what. But you can be among the first people in the world to find out at the Third Coast Awards Ceremony on Sunday, October 7th. 
Come mingle with the winning producers, drink a little bubbly, enjoy some tasty hors d'oeuvres, and get ready for a celebration of radio at its finest. The ceremony will be hosted by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, and feature not just one, but two live bands, Dogs on Tour and Hudson Branch. There will also be plenty of surprises in store since even the winners don't know which award they'll take home. It's all happening Sunday, October 7th from 6.30 to 9.30 at the Norris University Center on Northwestern's campus in Evanston. It's the only time you'll ever see that many public radio producers look so good. Just visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, for more information. We hope we'll see you there. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.